Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a very good afternoon to you all. Happy Monday and welcome to another week of Cresta in the Afternoon. As you can tell, this is not Al. He's a little under the weather today, but Lord willing, we'll be back later this week. But we do have a lot to talk about as we spend another week to end another day talking about the things that matter most. As you probably know, if you listen to this program a lot, we try to regularly talk about, we call them the anniversaries of different events. Maybe it's a birth, maybe it's a death, maybe it's another major historical event. And uh, there's a big one this week in American history, of course, December 7th, 1941, was that day that shall live in infamy, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Also this week, and actually today, is the anniversary of the death of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And so Al actually is going to be talking about both of those in the first segment of today's program looking at a story that we've told before that unfortunately is not very well known outside of um, Catholic circles. And it's a story of a priest who gave his life saving others during Pearl Harbor and was one of, if not the first, uh, U.S. military chaplain to die in the Second World War. Um, and then I guess we'll be talking a little bit about Mozart, what just some of the stories of the absolute genius that he was. It's really kind of hard to understand if you don't if you're if, even if you're like me and you're not really into classical music, you can understand it a little bit. But his level of of talent is just clearly a, a gift from God. And so uh, Al talks about that and somewhat about of Mozart's faith. And then later on in this hour, you've uh, probably heard the phrase "preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words." It's probably the most famous quote ever said by Saint Francis. But there's one problem: he never actually said that. And uh, Trent Horn has put together an entire book of the saints' most popular misquotes and also other misquotes from the Bible and other sources. There was a, a survey once that asked people to name their favorite Bible verse, and a bunch of people said their favorite Bible verse was that God helps those who help themselves. Again, one little problem, that's not in the Bible. And so uh, Trent joins us talking about all of that. And then in the next hour, we look at the New Testament in its world. As we read the New Testament, which we should be doing at all times, especially during Advent, uh, quickly becomes obvious that the events that we read about in those pages occurred in a culture and in a world that was very different from our own. We take a look at what that world was with N.T. Wright. All of that is coming up in this next two hours of Cresta in the Afternoon after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, December 5th. It's the Feast of St. Salvas. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. A Catholic campus ministry center at the University of Nebraska received a death threat Saturday morning in a note signed, Jane's Revenge, a calling card used by pro-abortion activists. The message, which was posted online, threatened to shoot up the school's Newman Center if bans on abortion are passed in Nebraska. The university's Department of Public Safety is working with local police to investigate. The CDC is warning of a shortage of kids' drugs as respiratory illnesses surge nationwide. The spike comes as flu season worsens and hospitals are struggling to deal with millions of RSV cases in children. According to CNN, the surge has affected supplies of liquid acetaminophen and ibuprofen, commonly given to children. 
The shortlist for Time's Person of the Year is out. Elon Musk won the title last year, and he's been nominated again after buying Twitter. Other individual nominees include Chinese President Xi Jinping and Ukrainian President Zelensky. Groups of people that were nominated include the U.S. Supreme Court and protesters in Iran who rose up following the death of a woman who had been held by the nation's morality police. A lawsuit is being filed by Taylor Swift fans against Live Nation over the mishandling of the pop star's ticket sales for her upcoming tour. They cited a breach of contract, intentional misrepresentation, fraud, antitrust, and unfair competition. And Americans now have more time to get their real IDs. The Department of Homeland Security announcing the deadline will be pushed back from May of next year to May of 2025. Real IDs will then be required to board flights or enter federal facilities. From your Avi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Well, one of the things people are observing today, of course, is the memory of Pearl Harbor. And I thought it would be a good time to just mention the sacrifice of Father Al Schmidt. He was the first U.S. military chaplain to die in the war. In fact, he had just been celebrating this 7 in the morning, 7 a.m. mass aboard the battleship USS Oklahoma. Uh, this is at Pearl Harbor, Sunday morning, December 7, 1941. That's when, of course, Japanese aircraft began their, their attack. Uh, he was a, a member of the U.S. Navy Chaplain Corps for only two years. He was 32. He had been assigned to minister to the spiritual needs of the sailors on the Oklahoma. He'd been there for less than a year. And despite the short time on board, uh, he really had done a great job of endearing himself uh, to the men there. He was known as uh, a man of uh, approachability. He had a great sense of humor. He certainly was a man of service. And uh, the USS, USS Oklahoma, called sometimes the Oki, was a Nevada-class battleship. It was commissioned during World War I, uh, an oil-burning uh, ship. Uh, <laughs> amazing. Uh, it saw service in the First World War, protecting convoys from German U-boats. And it participated. It was a well-known ship. I mean, it, was, it participated in a rescue mission of U.S. citizens from Spain during the uh, Spanish Civil War. But was then, you know, got assigned to the U.S. Pacific Fleet in 1937 and was sitting there at Pearl Harbor. But uh, the situation was that uh, after he finished Mass, he uh, heard the first alarm. uh, And soon after, he heard the Japanese bombs uh, falling on Ford Island. And then the Oki was hit in quick succession by three torpedoes. And within 10 minutes of the first strike, 10 minutes from the first strike, um, had uh, the ship had rolled almost entirely upside down. And as a result, uh, a large section of the crew were trapped. Uh, Father Al and several sailors uh, were trying to escape through a porthole. Uh, the priest was there helping these fellow sailors squeeze through this small portal, but he wasn't able, he was, despite all the efforts uh, of the freed sailors on top of the ship, he couldn't quite make it through. So uh, he ended up staying there to help other uh, sailors escape. And um, they managed to get him out there safely. But then he went back again. And back in the compartment, 
He helped other sailors escape, and then eventually the rushing waters just overwhelmed him. First Catholic chaplain uh, to die in the Second World War, he was posthumously awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal, uh, offered tributes to his memory. And um, Again, a story that isn't probably not told that often, but uh, one that we shouldn't let go, because a Catholic people are a biblical people, and a biblical people are a historically tradition-minded people, and we shouldn't forget the members of our family who have, uh, especially in situations like Father Al Schmidt, died in, um, in Christ's service. Let me switch gears and talk about an, another passing, and this was uh, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the great composer. His uh, death date was uh, December 5th, 1791. He was born in 1756. He died at the age of 35. Very complex human being, uh, a terribly short life, and yet he was so extraordinarily fruitful. Um, One of the many myths surrounding Mozart uh, was that Uh, He was especially anointed by God, and so that's why his middle name, Amadeus, lover of God, that that kind of empowered him to do supernatural work. In fact, there's one story told that as a boy, he was listening to the the papal choir during Holy Week in Rome, and they were performing a beloved piece, a miserare, which was very complex, and in fact, it was... um, limited, that you couldn't perform it anywhere outside uh, the Vatican. And after the performance, uh, Mozart, young Mozart, just went down, went to his back to his uh, room, and wrote out from memory every note of this very elaborate piece that he had just heard. Well, this is the way the story goes. It may be an apocryphal story. But word got back to the Pope, and instead of uh, earning a punishment from the Pope, the Pope ends up giving Mozart an award. But these are the kind of stories that surround him because his genius, his prodigy was so remarkable that people quickly attributed it uh, to God. But here's what the point I want, one of the points I want to make, and that is, look, Mozart was a genius, but as a genius, he worked his tail off. People don't realize this, that he might have been an international child celebrity. He might have been the family's main breadwinner, even as a youth. But he learned. He didn't have this knowledge infused into him. He had abilities that needed to be cultivated, and he went to the best composers of his day to learn. So he learned from Johann Christian Bach, the 11th son of Johann Sebastian Bach, and he learned from uh, Franz Joseph Haydn. In fact, uh, Haydn thought that Mozart was the great—again, Mozart was younger than Haydn. Haydn was of the—just a little bit earlier generation. Haydn thought Mozart was the best composer uh, of his day, even as a very young man. So uh, Mozart had a great reputation, but it wasn't because there had been some sort of divine infusion of genius. This guy simply worked hard. His father drove him, in fact. Uh, A tough relationship with his dad— I have a little more to say about that in just a moment. But, um, yeah, here, in fact, I just came across Haydn's comment. I assure you, this is what he said to Leopold, Mozart's dad. He said, look, I assure you before God and as an honorable man that your son is the greatest composer that I know personally or by reputation. 
Beethoven, who again is the generation following Mozart, okay, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, think in that order of the great composers. And the, the younger Beethoven was, was pushy and managed to get himself, push his way into uh, performing before Mozart. And Mozart, again, the way the story goes, um, told people to keep his eyes on this Beethoven figure because someday he's going to give the world something to talk about. And, and Beethoven himself had his tremendous esteem for Mozart. So in 1826, again, this is a generation after Mozart's death, Beethoven would still be able to say, I have always reckoned to myself among the greatest venerators of Mozart, and I shall remain so until my last breath. Unfortunately, most people today, when they think of Mozart, they think of the idiot savant buffoon from the movie Amadeus, which is a terribly uh, uh, distorted picture of the young man. Yes, he was playful. Uh, but overall, he was a fairly upright character. We do have a series of letters to an, a cousin, which were uh, bawdy, to say the least. But other than that, if you read through his correspondence, it's very, uh, very proper. In fact, he shows himself to be a devout, um, highly spiritually minded uh, young fellow. He was raised in a Catholic home, by the way. He was baptized a Catholic. His dad was very devout. He was an unquestioning Catholic, very compliant with what the Church taught. Uh, Mozart eventually begins to raise questions later in life, uh, but we'll get back to that in just a moment here. But the editors, to, to give you some idea of how, uh, that Mozart did in fact have a real spiritual uh, relationship, uh, that the editor of his published letters wrote that Mozart was of a deeply religious nature. He stood toward God in a relationship of a child full of trust in his father. So, again, Patrick Cavanaugh, in his book, The Spiritual Lives of the Great Composers, has great things to say about Mozart's spirituality. There are two instances in which, under uh, obligation of a vow to God, he composed two pieces of music. One of them was his great uh, C major mass, the other time is with a piece called uh, David the Penitent, or the Penitent David. And so uh, at one point he writes, uh, I know that I have so much religion that I shall never be able to do a thing which I would not be willing openly to do before the whole world. He wrote that to his father. He canceled a tour with two musicians who had a you know, bad reputation. And he said, friends who have no religion are not stable. Uh Again, this is fairly early on in his life, uh, but it continues on through, and it, his life was short. He only lived to be 35. And time and again, you see that his letters are punctuated with expressions of faith, uh, praise, gives praise to God. Um, here's another one. It will greatly assist um, such happiness as I may have to hear that my dear father and my dear sister have submitted wholly to the will of God with resignation and fortitude, and have put their whole confidence in him, in the firm assurance that he orders all things for the best. So again, he's, he's so grounded in his own understanding of God's providential will that he urges his, his dad and his sister uh, to be uh, more committed uh, to their relationship. Uh, in 1777, he wrote, let, uh, let come what will, nothing can go ill 
as it is the will of God, and that it may so go uh, in my daily prayer. I prayed to God for his mercy that all might go well uh, to his greater glory. Uh, I mean, these things recur over and over and over again. Uh, as he gets on, he's at the age of 31 now, just a few years before his death. He writes again, I never lie down in my bed without reflecting that perhaps I, young as I am, may not live to see another day. Yet none of all who know me can say that I am socially melancholy or morose. For this blessing, I daily thank my Creator and wish it from my heart for all my fellow man. Now, some people will say that at the end of his life, he began to question uh, the teaching of the Church and became a Mason. But that greatly distorts what's, what actually happens. This is discussed in some detail in Nicholas Till's book, Mozart and the Enlightenment. And uh, while, in fact, he did join a Masonic lodge, there were two of them in Vienna at the time. One of them was, you might say, an Orthodox Masonic lodge in that uh, it was fairly secular in orientation and was anti-Catholic. But there was a much smaller uh, lodge associated with, with what some people call the Catholic Enlightenment. Mozart, when he was faced with a choice between the two lodges, stuck with the Catholic Lodge because he saw them as bringing what he believed were some necessary reforms. But it's false to say that he lost his faith or his confidence in the Catholic Church. He did think that some things needed to be changed in his, uh, before his death, for a year or two, he was a member of this lodge. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be back. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for those who have diabetes. Almighty God, we worship you, our Father, and we pray this day for those who suffer with diabetes. Look upon your children with this illness and grant them relief. Give them patience and the grace of perseverance in taking care of their health. Show them the way to physical and spiritual well-being. Let their cry come to your ears and bring them healing in mind and body and soul. We ask this in the holy name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. What qualifies as a valid marriage in the eyes of the Catholic Church? The Catechism tells us there are certain requirements that must be present or the marriage is not a true sacrament. The requirements are as follows. The marriage must be between a baptized man and a baptized woman who are free to contract marriage and who freely express their consent. The Catechism defines freedom to contract as not being under constraint and not impeded by any natural or ecclesiastical law. The exchange of consent between the spouses is considered by the Church to be the most indispensable element of a valid marriage. According to the Catechism, the consent must be an act of the will of each party, free of coercion or grave external fear. If this freedom is lacking, the marriage is not valid. 
This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for almost 20 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company, and it sent millions of dollars to thousands of pro-life charities. 5G coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. Live chat and a video introduction are available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile. Everyday living. Effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Crested in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization, Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 75% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. You know, there are many quotes that are out there that we repeat that are misquote, famous misquotations, or sometimes things are misattributed. Uh, we take a statement that was uh, made by Oscar Wilde and we attribute it to George Bernard Shaw. Or, and sometimes we just got quotes that are pure fabrications. Uh, here, one of the most famous is, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, attributed to St. Francis. Uh, nobody's found anywhere where St. Francis said that. But there's, that's just one of the most popular, and in some ways, one of the most damaging. Well, my guest, Trent Horn, has uh, gone ahead and he's picked up dozens of these pious misquotes, and in some cases, subtle heresies. And he's put them together in a book called What the Saints Never Said. Uh, you know Trent as the author of many uh, helpful, very helpful books, including Why We're Catholic, Our Reasons for Faith, Hope, and Love, The Case for Catholicism, Answer to Classic and Contemporary Protestant Objections, Hard Sayings, which is a, a great look at some of the uh, most trolling uh, Bible difficulties. And he's also published an entire book on answering atheism, how to make the case for God with logic and charity. Today we look at what the saints never said, pious misquotes and the subtle heresies they teach you. Trent is uh, with a regular host on Catholic Answers Live, and he's a staff apologist for Catholic Answers. And Trent, good to have you back with me. 
good to be back. Thank you for having me. All right. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. What do we know about that phrase or sentence? Where did it come from? Do we know? Well, it's always hard to track down the exact source of a misquote or a misattribution. Um, I've done my own digging on this particular quote, and uh, people are usually surprised. I was surprised. I think it's very recent, actually. The earliest source I was able to find uh, was a work uh, attributing it to St. Francis written in the year 1990. Uh, I did not find... Yeah, I mean, I was expecting maybe to find something earlier, but (laughs) you can use online search engines to search magazines and periodicals uh, as far back as the 19th century, but going through all of that, early 20th century writers don't mention it. Uh, So that's one clue. The other was that I was reading a blog post from St. Anthony Messenger, uh, from the editor there, who himself is a Franciscan, who says he's actually never, he never heard the quote until he attended a, a funeral mass in 1996. So I think it's, <laughs> it's somewhat recent, and this is, this is easily, yeah, this is the paradigmatic example of a misquote with a subtle heresy built into it. <laughs> well, this is frustrating, especially since we know that uh, uh, Pope Paul VI, in his... Uh, uh, work on the, the evangelization in the modern world said explicitly that we must use words. So this is actually flies in the face of recent papal teaching. Correct. It also flies in the face of what St. Francis himself taught and believed, because people forget that St. Francis was an amazing preacher. His early <laughs> biographers talk about how he imitated the uh, the medieval uh, dramatists of his day, the troubadours. He he imitated their style and was very, uh, he used words, but he was energetic, he was animated, and he would move people to tears with preaching with words, not merely just setting being a good example. And so uh, I couldn't see how he would ever say something like this. Right, right. Um, now, this is not to say that uh, we can't in some way uh, exist exemplify the truth in our deeds. We're not denying the importance of consistent living, right? Absolutely not. And in fact, in the book, I have the misquotes, but also I put forward authentic quotes from the saints that should guide us. So St. Teresa of Avila said, we must all try to be preachers by our deeds. Yeah. So yeah, making sure your deeds correspond to what you preach. The problem is in the quote, it's really, it's just two words that are the problem. If necessary. If necessary. <laughs> right use words. Uh, And that's where it becomes problematic, because imagine if I said to you, love your wife, if necessary, use words. (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with saying I love you. In fact, you should say that. That's great. That's great. Um, By the way, I have to ask you before we go any further, what was the one that most surprised you in the book? Uh, Well, they they were all pretty surprising. That was one that... um, you know, didn't surprise me because I had I had always uh, heard it in so many different times. I think one that surprised me, um, not I always knew it was fake, but it's it's a misquote from the Bible. Mm-hmm. God helps those who help themselves. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I was reading a, 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 a I think it was a survey that said that it is the most popular Bible verse in America, God helps those who help themselves, even though it's not in the Bible. That shocked me that when they ask people, what's your favorite verse in the Bible, people will cite that, but it's not even in there. (laughs) I hadn't seen that before. That's great. Um, 
Uh, how about spare the rod, spoil the child? Speaking of Bible verses, yeah, I have a whole chapter uh, on that, and that also the that in scripture, or sorry, that one I, I give the different misquotes and misattributions, different categories. Mm-hmm. That one I call close but not quite. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a paraphrase of Proverbs thirteen twenty four, which says, "He who spares the rod hates his son." but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So it's a paraphrase, and people make it seem like you're not beating your kid, you're spoiling him. No, what it's saying here is you should discipline right. your children. And the, and the rod was a, was a means of discipline in, in the time of the Old Testament, and people have different views on corporal punishment now, but the same truth holds, which is uh, if you love your child, you'll discipline them, and it's unloving to not discipline them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how about, here's one, God moves in mysterious ways. Oh, yes, that, that one is uh, <laughs> it's not in Scripture at all. Uh, that appears to be, uh, I mean, the, the sentiment is certainly in Scripture. Sure. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God says, My ways are as high above your ways as the heavens are above the earth. Right. Uh, it probably comes from a 18th century hymn from William Cowper, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. So it probably is from a hymn, but not, it's not from Scripture. Okay. So um, here's one you've got here. Okay. Uh, hold on. Okay. Um, this too shall pass. That sounds biblical. <laughs> it does. And I had a... a, a mother uh, friend who was a mother of 10 children. She was a mother to all of us growing up in our Catholic community. Whenever bad things would happen, she would say to us, don't worry, this too shall pass. Uh, well, I always took it as just her kind of timeless wisdom, and people attribute it to the Bible, but it's, um, it's not there. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila said, all things are passing, God never changes. The closest is in Second Corinthians chapter 4. St. Paul talks about our sufferings in this life as a slight momentary affliction mm. when you compare it to the weight of glory in heaven. So he doesn't say this too shall pass, but he calls what happens now a slight momentary affliction. Now, here's one that I've heard over and over and over again, and actually, uh, you're the first one I've come across who's actually spent time trying to f- locate it. Pray as though everything depended on God, act as if everything depended on you. What's the source? Of yes, that? Uh, yeah. So that's the famous um, paradoxical wisdom from Saint Ignatius of Loyola, mm-hmm. and people put that you know put that out there all the time. And yet, uh, there's a pro- one we we don't we can't find it in either his writings uh, or in early biographies about him, like uh, Pedro de Ribeneras, uh, you know, biography written shortly after Saint Ignatius of Loyola's death. Uh, we we just don't find it in there. Uh, it is, I do make the point that it's, it's quoted in the catechism, uh, so people think, like, oh, well, it's in the catechism, right, but the catechism's not inerrant. Uh, it, it cites a 19th century study of the Jesuits, that paragraph in the catechism, but even it admits that, well, in this precise formula, the thought is not found in Ignatius's writings. Uh, the, the problem is that it, it, this quote, why I don't like it, is that it divides, like, prayer and work. Is right. It, Okay, so you, you, I'll pray over here, uh, you know, praise if it all depends on God, and then once God's out of the way, then I'm going to act, and I'm going to put the work done <laughs> once, once I get him out of the way. That's right. 
<laughs> now, and, I did my God thing. Now I'm going to go work. I don't need to think about God again. I just have to go work. Right. When we should unite our, our labors to God and make him a part of everything that we do. Right. So really the closest that I found, when I go back to St. Ignatius' writing, so he doesn't put it this way because it's problematic, but in a letter to Francis Borgia in 1555, he, see, he did say, I consider it an error to trust and hope in any means or efforts in themselves alone, nor do I consider it a safe path to trust the whole matter to God. Uh, so I, he says, I ought to make use of both parts, desiring in all things his greater praise and glory. So he's saying, yeah, we should, you know, don't think that God's only going to do it or you're only going to do it. Fully unite both in everything that you do, sure. which is a lot better way to look at it. It is, yes, yes, indeed. By the way, you have this the so-called serenity prayer in here attributed to, misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Where does it come from? Uh, yes, uh, Lord, grant me the strength to change the things I can the serenity to deal with the things I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, most people think, wow, didn't St. Francis come up with that at his first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? <laughs> because that's where the prayer, you know, and when he, who knows, have too much medieval wine, because that's where the prayer uh, rose in popularity. Right. It's not found in St. Francis's writings. Uh, the earliest source I found was a 1927 Christian newsletter that attributes it to a Protestant theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he phrased it differently, but it probably comes from him. And the reason it got so popular was that a secretary at Alcoholics Anonymous uh, saw it in a 1941 New York Herald Tribune obituary. So she saw it in an obituary, uh, showed it to other people in the office, and then they included it in their 12 steps, and, and it's been memorialized ever since, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like it, but I, I didn't think it was St. Francis. It, uh, it's, has, it, I, I was aware of it from uh, AA, so... Um, yeah, and, that, and that's where it rose to popularity, but Niebuhr was the first person to come up with it. Yeah. Here's a famous one. I believe because it is absurd, always attributed to Tertullian. Yes. Uh, this is, is really more of a, a misquote. Uh, it's from Tertullian's work on the flesh of Christ, where he's combating, combating the Docetist heresy, which said that Jesus only appeared to have a human body, but he didn't have a real human body. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the Cambridge History of Literary Criticism says that Tertullian's writings do not include the words, I believe, because it is absurd. Uh, and so what he does say is, the Son of God was crucified, there is no shame because it is shameful. The Son of God died, it is believable because it is foolish, and buried he rose again, it is certain because it is impossible. <laughs> Hold it there, Trent. We'll come back on the other side and, and continue. My guest, Trent Horn, what the saints never said. Steve Ray here with a Holy Land pilgrimage update. Israel's now open again and has removed all vaccine requirements. Our brand new Buses and Catholic Guide are ready to welcome you. Check out our upcoming pilgrimages to the biblical lands of Israel and Jordan. Pray every mystery of the rosary where it happened and walk in the footprints of Mary and Jesus and let us be your guides. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. 
When you see the world with Catholic eyes, you see God's hand at work in human history. You see the true, the good, and the beautiful. With a Master's of Arts in Catholic Studies from Franciscan University of Steubenville, you see the world as it truly is. This online program helps you see art, literature, theology, psychology, and more as occasions for grace. Find out more about the Master's in Catholic Studies at franciscan.edu slash mcs. That's franciscan.edu slash mcs. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. On the last Ivan Maria Radio Poll of the Week, we wanted to know if you were following the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Well over 50% of you weren't following at all. About 30% actually are very interested in the results of the cup, and the rest of you were following it, but now that the U.S. has been eliminated, you don't really care anymore. Thanks to everybody who voted in this Poll of the Week. If you want to vote in the next poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Poll of the Week. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss What happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent? When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. I'm angry frustrated. Sound like you? Someone you know? Well, it could be any of us from time to time. But there's different types of anger. It's not so cut and dry. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Ray. One thing is for sure, you don't need to suffer with anger frustration. In my book, Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration, you'll learn whether your anger is a product of your nature or your nurture, and how to regulate those emotions and those thoughts. You can get Living Calm and all my other books at AveMariaRadio.net. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Trent Horn, who you hear regularly on Catholic Answers Live. He's also the author of a number of outstanding books, including Answering Atheism, uh, How to Make the Case for God with Logic and Clarity, or Charity, excuse me, 
uh, hard sayings, a Catholic approach to answering Bible difficulties. We're looking at a recent one called What the Saints Never Said, Pious Misquotes and the Subtle Heresies They Teach You. Before the break, we're talking about uh, the phrase which is, I can't tell you how often I've seen this attributed to Tertullian in uh, philosophy of religion uh, books. I believe because it is absurd. Let's go back there and pick that up again. Is he right. embracing absurdity? No, what he's saying here uh, about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is essentially he's saying Christianity is true because it's too ridiculous or absurd for someone to have simply made up right. or imagined. In fact, the Latin word absurdum is not in the passage. It's <laughs> not in the passage. It's better at saying, he's basically he's saying it is credible because it is foolish, that this is not something people would, would just simply make up, that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then his followers would never believe such an absurd thing that he rose if it did not actually happen, because they're positing an actual bodily resurrection where you see, touch, you know, interact with someone, not just a mere spiritual revelation. Right. So a mere spiritual revelation, yeah, maybe someone could come up with that, but right. a bodily resurrection from the dead, he's saying that's just too absurd for someone to just simply made up, make up. They said it because it actually happened. Yes, that's it, what he's saying. That's right. It's so utterly implausible, nobody would dare make it up and try to pass it off as real, unless, of course, right. it did happen. Right. Exactly. Right. Um Here's one you've got, too. It goes to Galileo. Um, this is the, it, there's a popular legend that uh, after being found guilty of teaching the heresy that the earth orbited the sun, Galileo muttered under his breath, and yet it moves. <laughs> I, I love the yeah. drama of it, but I always, have always doubted the, the truth of it. Tell me about it. Epur simovet, and yet it moves, is the idea that he mutters this after his trial and then he's locked up in a dungeon, and he probably says it again there when he's chained up. But, of course, the historical records show us that Galileo was not imprisoned in a dungeon. He was not tortured. He was placed under house arrest for violating the orders of the Pope mm -hmm. and for really uh, tweaking the papal nose by writing a series of dialogues where, you know, he, he refers to the Pope under the character Simplicio, which is simpleton <laughs> or idiot. Right. This is really inner, inner papal drama that brought about his trial, not some kind of crusade against uh, modern astronomy, because, of course, the, pope, the previous popes had no problems with the work of Copernicus, right. for example. Right. Uh, now, this particular uh, quote that he said this, there's, there's really no evidence for it. The most we have is a 17th century Spanish painting depicts Galileo in a dungeon with this sign underneath it. Uh, but, but once again, because we know the dungeon part is apocryphal, that means that this quote is connected to the painting. It's probably apocryphal as well. <laughs> Very good. Uh, you have St. Augustine's uh, a phrase attributed to St. Augustine, Rome has spoken, the case is closed. What's the story behind that? Right. Uh, so, so what's happening here is uh, sometimes people will, will quote this, uh, saying like, oh, you know, Augustine believed, hey, uh, you know, whenever the Pope speaks about anything, the case is closed. And that's really an overreach. Mm -hmm. But in this example, this is important, that Augustine is talking about a controversy between Pope Zosimus and the Pelagian heretics, Pelagius and his disciple Celestius, uh, that they had been denounced by Zosimus's predecessor, 
uh, for their heresies, and uh, Zosimus was, you know, possibly going to readmit them to the Church, but they, they had lied in what their faith was, hiding their heresies, and so Augustine is talking about this. He's, you know, talking about how, hey, the councils in Africa, like the council in Carthage, already denounced these people. They've already been denounced at Rome. Uh, it's not going any further. Uh, a, a rescript has been sent. He didn't. He said the case is closed. He just didn't say the part Rome has spoken. He said causa finita est. Uh, the cause is finished. Uh, and he said that reports had come from the Apostolic See. So it's a very, very small misquote. Yes. So sometimes people misquote it, and then they overstate it to say, you know, Rome has spoken, the case is closed. Anything the Pope says yeah. is, you know, 100% true. And that's not what he's saying, because that's not what we believe as Catholics. When right. the Pope's not defining a dogma, he could be wrong. Sure. But uh, sure. in this case, the, the apostolic authority, Augustine is saying, is behind the condemnation of the Pelagian heresy. So this is a particular instance, and... Uh the people have taken this particular instance and tried to universalize it? Yeah, they have. And so you've taken it out of its context. But Pope, I'm sorry, Augustine is saying, though, that, look, the, the heretic's cause is finished because the regional right. council spoke, and the apostolic see has sent a report back. You know, That's it, right. It's over. And so it, it's important to do this, because I, I saw a debate once where a priest was debating a Protestant apologist, and he said, you know, well, there was early papal authority, and Augustine said, Rome has spoken, the case is closed. And the Protestant apologist got him, because he said, well, where in Augustine's writings does he say that? <laughs> and so he had him, because he knew that this was a misquote. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, how about, let's take a Luther uh, quote here. Here I stand, I can do no other. Um, I mean, there's a famous uh, biography of Luther written by Roland Bainton, I think, called Here I Stand. Yes, um, this is this. I, I in the book I say that this is kind of uh, the Protestant answer to Rome has spoken. You know, Luther <laughs> right. says, "I don't care. Here I stand. I can do no other." And it's incredibly dramatic. It's supposed to be the last line of his speech at the Diet of Worms, uh, where he gets Luther had one last chance to denounce his heresy, and he doesn't. And it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful flourish to finish, but it's so wonderful, it, it makes more sense that it's an editor added it later to Luther's works. Uh, that's the conclusion that Diarmaid McCullough reaches, and he wrote a very large classic treatment of the Reformation. Uh, and he, sa he says that this has become the most memorable thing Luther never said. <laughs> Um, do we know where it comes from? Uh, I believe uh, it was the first, uh, a, a, another scholar, George Rohrer, says that it was the first editor of Luther's collected works may have added it, uh, either intentionally or it could have been a gloss yeah. that came into the text. We find a lot of times in textual histories that when quotes or interpolations occur, a lot of times they begin that, a later editor or collector writes a gloss in the side of the text as a comment to people, right. and then the next copyist throws it into the main text. So that's something <laughs> that textual critics watch out for. Moves it from the margins into the body of the text. You that's know. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's. You also you also uh, have a, a number of pages here on what the saints did say. Of course, it's not an exhaustive collection. Of, of important sayings from important figures in Catholic history, but it is um, it is a collection of wise, remarkable things that have been said that we should take with uh, great seriousness, and maybe others would um, uh, others might dismiss them, not knowing they are in fact grounded in the teaching of the saints. 
Um, here's one that caught me, because I'd never heard this before. How can you ask to be heard of God when you yourself do not hear yourself, St. Cyprian of Carthage? That's that's fresh to me. I've never heard that. Right, yes. And so uh, I, I included that there in the collection of quotes, because it's important to be able to say, uh, you know, when, especially when it comes to our prayer lives. Earlier in the book, I talked about misquotes related to, like, St. Teresa of Avila and others on the subject of prayer, and there's a lot of those out there. But this is an important one where St. Cyprian is saying, look, uh, you, you spend all your time mindlessly pouring out your, your thoughts to God, or your requests, essentially, turning them into a cosmic vending machine, uh, but why don't you examine your own life first, turn your spiritual life inward to contemplate, instead of just turning prayer into rattling off my daily needs to God, without even really thinking about them. Right, right. You also quote St. Teresa of Avila here, we must all try to be preachers by our deeds. That's a good one to bring mm-hmm. up in response to the uh, misattributed quote to uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Um Here's from uh, the Summa Theologia of St. Thomas Aquinas. Whatever we do or suffer for a friend is pleasant, because love is the principal cause of pleasure. That's profound. Oh, absolutely. And it's unfortunate people—I mean, the Summa Theologia is—I uh, mean, it's it's written as a beginner's guide to theology. So when you <laughs> sit down and start to read it, you really don't feel like it's— Maybe for a beginner in the, the 13th century, right. right now, we need—you know, it's, it's not theology for dummies. Right, um, right. Uh, so people uh, can be scared off from it, but there's these wonderful insights in here from uh, the angelic doctor, and, and they're, they're great to, to take into account. And it makes sense because pleasure, whenever we seek pleasure, we're, we're seeking some kind of good. And so, um, so when, when we seek that, you know, we're seeking a good, even if it's distorted in some way. And so love wills the good for another. And so it's important for us then, when we love a friend, we're willing the good, and so pleasure naturally comes from that. Instead of seeking pleasure as an end, uh, you know, simply for that, that can usually leave us unsatisfied. Yeah. There's one from Pope St. John Paul II here, which goes back to the relationship between church and world, or Christ and culture, and it's um, taken from the plenary meeting of the Pontifical Council for Social Communications, March 1st, 2002, and you quote, The gospel lives in conversation with the culture, and if the church holds back from the culture, the gospel itself falls silent. Those are important words, especially now with some people saying that we should be withdrawing from uh, cultural engagement. Right. Uh, There's one great thing, though, about modern um, pontificates and uh, other Catholic writers today is uh, there's a double-edged sword with communication. So on the one hand, many of these errors, these misquotes, spread so widely because we have Internet and it's easy to forward or share things kind of mindlessly. So that's the downside. The plus side, though, is that I can go online to, you know, to the Vatican website, look at all the homilies, everything from Pope St. John Paul II, mm-hmm. and have at my fingertips wonderful wisdom like this to be able to share. And he's right that if we just turn backwards within to ourselves, uh, the gospel, it falls silent. Our faith is not something we merely contemplate. We're something we share. 
so that we can make disciples of all nations. Yeah, yeah. Well, Trent, let me thank you once again for your great work, and I uh, appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And again, this is a wonderful book, and it, it's, it's also humorous in so many ways. Uh, it, it'll surprise and delight uh, anybody who reads it. Thanks so much, Trent. Thank you for having me. What the Saints Never Said, Pious Misquotes and the Subtle Heresies They Teach You, Trent Horn. I'm Al Cresta. The Encounter Conference, December 28th through the 30th at the DeVos Place Convention Center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 13 powerful speakers. Do you want more? The truth is, brothers and sisters, there is no solution to the cultural and church crisis but Jesus Christ the Lord, alive in a church that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Period. That's it. He's finding out right now who's with me, who wants to live in the Spirit of God, who wants to follow me. That's what he's doing. It's going to be a work of God for the glory of the Father, the Father glorifying the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit through a people who are alive to him and are proclaiming him with everything they've got. Register today at EncounterConference.org. That's EncounterConference.org. Steve Ray here with a Holy Land pilgrimage update. Israel's now open again and has removed all vaccine requirements. Our brand new Buses and Catholic Guide are ready to welcome you. Check out our upcoming pilgrimages to the biblical lands of Israel and Jordan. Pray every mystery of the rosary where it happened and walk in the footprints of Mary and Jesus and let us be your guides. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. This Ave Maria Radio program is brought to you by the following nonprofit. Catholic Charities Agencies served more than 15 million people this past year, providing meals for school-aged children and affordable housing for families, seniors, and veterans. To support these and other programs, consider a Catholic Charities USA donor-advised fund. Simplify your philanthropy and leave a legacy that's simple, flexible, and charitable. For more information, visit ccusa.gives/daf1. Thanks for being with us in this first hour. Go to IveMarieRadio.net to follow up on to the, this first uh, couple of segments. We'll have material there relating to Al's commentary on Pearl Harbor and on um, the death of Mozart. And also you'll be able to get a hold of Trent Horn's book on the most popular misquotes of the saints. Uh, coming up in the next hour, we have a lot more to talk about, including the world of the New Testament. But before we go there, I wanted to, just since we were talking about saints, wanted to take some time to give attention to a great piece that we found at Catholic Exchange, which we'll have linked at our website and on our social media pages. And it's simply called Three Saints for Advent. Um, one of them is pretty obvious, St. Nicholas, or you know the, the real St. Nicholas from which we get uh, Santa. And the story of the real St. Nicholas is actually a lot more interesting than just a fat guy with a beard. And um, 
there's the story of how there you may have seen it and there's the old uh, cartoon movie about him the three daughters who were of marrying age but did not have the money to for their dowries and uh he you know tossed the gold in through their open window one night which is probably kind of where the legend of santa started also there's the story he may or may not have punched a heretic that seems to be somewhat questioned by historians and maybe we'll get a guest on tomorrow to talk more about that but also on this list of three saints to get to know during advent one is saint lucy and um her feast day is december 13th a favorite among a lot of people so i know a lot of uh several of my friends have chosen her as their confirmation saint and uh lucy comes from the latin word lux which means light makes a lot of sense during advent and um she like a lot of other saints follows the story of was um uh, betrothed to a man she did not want to get married because she had preserved herself for Christ and was uh, for this she was denounced as a Christian and uh, sentenced to death they tried to um, uh, tried to burn her to death and were not successful and so they eventually just had to stab her but um, invoked for assistance with the diseases of the eyes with dysentery with hemorrhages and it's the patron saint of Sicily um, and also for the Swedish people so all of those you can read about that in this article and then finally the other um saint that we're supposed to get to know during advent is saint barbara whose feast was yesterday and uh i don't have time to go all to her and all to her story right now so i'll just uh again have that posted at the website we'll be back with more cresta in the afternoon after this break Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome back to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon as we continue this Monday edition, looking at some of the things that matter most. Of course, this is uh, not Al's voice. This is his producer, Brian. Al's a little under the weather today. Lord willing, we'll be back later this week. But uh, like I said, a lot more to talk about today. If you missed the first hour, you can find it in our archives we're celebrating this week both the anniversary, or not really celebrating, but we're acknowledging the anniversary of Pearl Harbor coming up on Wednesday, as well as the death of Mozart, who died on this day, December 5th, 1791. And Al uh, had some thoughts on both of those in the first hour. Also, we talked earlier with Trent Horn about preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, and other popular saint phrases that were never actually said. Uh, today, in this hour, we go a different direction. During Advent and really any time of the year, you know, we should be familiar ourselves with the Bible. And we read a lot of things in Advent, a lot of these stories about, that happened back in New Testament times. And looking at it through the eyes of 21st century America or 21st century, wherever we happen to be listening to us right now, it just seems very strange. It's very different context, very different cultural world in which they lived. And so uh, N.T. Wright, has, who we've been, he's been on this program many times over the years, author of several outstanding books. And uh, one of those books is The New Testament in Its World. And in this book and in this interview coming up, he um, 
examines attitudes and values of the people at the time of the New Testament, how this whole cultural setting influenced the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, other cultures at the time, and how the universal message of the New Testament applied to that audience and also to ours. Uh, and I talked also, just real quick, one to follow up on something I mentioned in the close of the last hour, which was some saints to know during Advent. And uh, this is, again, an article that we have available at our website. Another saint that we want to get to know during Advent is St. Barbara, who uh, lived in ancient times, was the uh, daughter of a pagan who locked her in a tower and sent philosophers, poets, and scholars to teach her things about paganism. She uh, did not buy polytheism and so consulted Origen, one of the early Christian apologists, and he sent one of his own disciples to her, and that, that disciple Valentium was able to, uh, to baptize her. Uh, her father obviously did not take this well. He had her dragged out of the tower. She escaped, and then he pursued her and dragged her by, back to, by the hair of her head and, um, and had her tortured. As the story goes, as she was being carried off to heaven by the angels, her father was struck dead by lightning and hurried before the judgment seat of God. That whole story is at AveMariaRadio.net. We're not talking about it today, but it's part of this series on saints to know during Advent. But as we get to know the saints, we're also getting to know the New Testament after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, December 5th. It's the Feast of St. Thomas. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. The Supreme Court is signaling it may sign with a web designer opposed to same-sex marriage. The high court hearing arguments involving Colorado graphic designer Lori Smith, who refuses to create wedding websites for same-sex couples because it's a conflict with the religious beliefs. The state of Colorado is compelling and controlling my speech, chilling it, and forcing me to communicate a message through my custom, unique artwork. That violates the core of who I am. The court's conservative majority appeared to favor the designer's First Amendment rights over Colorado's anti-discrimination law. The embattled former CEO of FTX appears to be taking full responsibility of the cryptocurrency exchange collapse. I screwed up. Like, I was CEO. I had a responsibility to be on top of what was going on on the exchange. Hearing on ABC this week, Samuel Bankman-Fried also admitted that he was spread thin sometimes and thought there were processes in place that were managing the borrowing and lending on the platform. His comments come as FTX is working through a bankruptcy process and regulators are looking into the company's lack of oversight that saw the loss of more than $30 billion in a matter of weeks. For the first time in history, the European Parliament will allow a nativity scene to be set up at its headquarters in Brussels. Officials had previously banned the display over concerns it would be offensive. And a California startup is promising a flying car by 2025. Aleph Aeronautics from the San Francisco Bay Area wants to start delivering its $300,000 Model A flying car to customers by the end of the year. Aleph is already taking deposits from potential customers. From the Ave Maria Radio Dead News Desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Those of us who begin reading the New Testament become aware fairly quickly that there's a whole lot we don't know about the setting of the New Testament. Uh, who are the New Testament authors writing to? What are the circumstances that occasion the writing? Sometimes it seems obvious, other times it's less clear. 
And uh, we also wonder about the larger uh, setting of the New Testament. What were the attitudes of uh, the New Testament writers to uh, the Roman Empire? Uh, what were their attitudes towards the Jewish uh, leadership and authorities? How did they understand the work of Jesus in their own immediate setting? And of course, we try to get behind the eyes of the uh, first audience, which is very important. But we also know that the New Testament is meant to be read by us today and applied by us today. So it's not just enough to get behind the eyes of that first audience. One man who's done more, I think, than anybody else in my generation to help us understand uh, not only the setting of the uh, New Testament, its content, but also its application in our own generation is Dr. N.T. Wright. He is presently Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. He's the author of more than 80 books and hundreds of articles. And most recently, he's contributed, along with uh, co-author Michael Byrd, The New Testament in Its World. It's an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. And Dr. Wright, it's a pleasure to have you back with me again. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. Let's uh, talk about the very title of the book, The New Testament in Its World. Um, the world of the New Testament certainly is the Roman world, it's the Jewish world, and then, of course, we're in the 21st century world. Talk to me about world and its importance for the, this book. Well, um, I think by world here we mean uh, a kind of three overlapping cultural worlds. The world of the first century Jews, which is uh, obviously where Jesus himself was and where all the earliest followers of Jesus were uh, living in the Jewish world, whether in the Middle East or out in the diaspora in Turkey or Egypt or, or, or Greece or wherever. But then secondly, and I've already mentioned it, the world of Greece, which is the world of philosophy, of ideas, of culture, um, which had spread itself right across what we call the Middle East 300 years before the time of Jesus, so that um, Greek is everybody's second language at the time. Um, you know, just like many parts of the world today, um, English is everybody's second language. So Greek was like that in the first century. Um, and there were many ideas and discussions which are going around about the big issues, about God and the world, about what it means to be human and so on, which many um, intelligent, thoughtful people were, were giving voice to. And the early Christians, when they were saying what they wanted to say, that was part of their audience. That was part of who they were addressing. But then thirdly, it's the Roman world. And though Rome, of course, has uh, ideas, etc., it's particularly a world of empire, of power, of military power, of a political system which was so strong that it basically ran a large portion of the known world for hundreds of years. Um, it was a very robust system. And again, anyone talking about God becoming king, about the kingdom of God, about Jesus as king and lord and lord of the world, is inevitably going to bump their nose pretty soon up against the Roman world, the Roman way of doing power, if you like. And uh, it, it's very interesting because, of course, um, the question of the Jewish world, a question of, of a monotheistic world, one God who has made the world and loves the world, the question of the Greek world with its ideas and culture, and then the question of power, these questions are very much with us still. Greece and Rome and the Middle East may not play exactly the same role as they did in the first century, but um, there is a kind of a, an obvious relevance of all of this to the, first, to the 21st century. But in order to get at it, we really need to understand what was going on in those worlds at the time. So there we are. The key, the key proclamation, Jesus is Lord, uh, the idea that Jesus uh, is identified with proclaiming the kingdom of God, inaugurating the kingdom of God, 
how does that bump up against uh, the Roman world? Well, uh, there are many people today who would say that if you take, say, Mark's Gospel, which is the shortest and in some ways the easiest, not necessarily, but uh, uh, you have Mark's portrayal of Jesus as the King of the Jews in stark contrast to the Roman Empire. Um, There are several points in the narrative which seem to, especially when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then is tried by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and it's almost as though the soldiers are mocking Jesus as though he wants to be some kind of a Caesar. And then the centurion at the foot of the cross says, actually, this man was the son of God. And we know from the coins and so on of the time that the phrase son of God was in regular use as an epithet for Caesar himself. So all the way through, though the the Jewish meaning is paramount, um, the the implication all the way through is that if this is the king of the Jews, then um, Caesar has to take some demotion. He's got to be brought down a peg or two at the very least, quite possibly more. And then when we get to Paul, it's quite clear in passages like Philippians chapter 2, when he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But he's saying Jesus is Lord, and then in square brackets, as it, and by the way, that means that Caesar is not Lord, because Lord is a regular Caesar title as well. Mm-hmm. So those are two very obvious ways in which um, to read the New Testament with your eyes open to the first century makes you realize um, this is pretty much in your face, actually. The, the, the world of uh, Second Temple Judaism, first century Palestinian Judaism, is uh, a world with lots of debate and argument going on. Uh, to what degree would the, your average uh, uh, first century uh, Jew on the street understand that the kingdom of God was in fact uh, a challenge to the entire Roman world, the Roman Empire. Uh, and to what degree did he see it as a, you know, a matter of personal devotion, and he should wait to, uh, you know, until the his death and hopefully enter in the afterlife some kind of what we would call heaven. Oh. Yeah, well, um, that th- many Jews did discuss different options about what they might believe about the afterlife, but the phrase "kingdom of God." was never a phrase about what we call the afterlife. That was always, uh, as Jesus taught his followers to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Mm -hmm. It's assumed that God is already king in heaven, but the whole point of the Lord's Prayer is to pray that this will become a reality on earth as well. And so many Jews of the time would believe that though God would look after them after their death, um, of course he would, because he promised to do that, um, that there would come a new time within the world of space, time, and matter, within real... Uh, the the reality of this world, in which um, God would renew everything and raise his people from the dead, and that would be the kingdom of God. And when you look at the Old Testament, um, the book of Isaiah, the Psalms, the book of Daniel, which is very prominent here, the idea of God becoming king is never about um, uh, leaving this world and going to a place called heaven. It's always something dramatic happening to turn things around within this world. And that is certainly what the earliest Christians believed. Um, So that though, of course, there are many opinions in first century Judaism, we can never say all Jews believed X, um, because there are always differences of opinion. But when you're talking about the kingdom of God, you're retrieving those biblical texts in particular, which are about the great turnaround within the present world. And this is something that modern Christians, modern Western Christians, find it very difficult to get their heads around because we've been drilled uh, with so much Plato since the 18th and 19th century, which has been actually a way of keeping the church, a way of the politicians keeping the church off the patch. Uh, there you are, you go and believe in heaven and we'll run the world. Right. Uh, the early Christians <laughs> would have said, truly, Jesus runs the world, thank you very much, and, and 
but, but he doesn't do it in the same way as Caesar does. That's, that's the crucial thing, that the kingdom of God, as revealed in Jesus, is about a different kind of power, a different way of doing power. And we see the early church wrestling with precisely that in a book like Second Corinthians, for instance. Well, would, um, I mean, it's, there's a whole stream of uh, New Testament scholarship that would say Jesus came uh, promising the kingdom, and all we ended up with was this church. Um, that in yeah, fact yeah, yeah. he he failed. Uh, he he was he mis he was he misled people, or he himself was uh, wrong about his own uh, power yeah, and expectations. That, that's that's been yeah that's been a very frequent thing that people have said over this last century or so, and I think it it goes back to various people like Tyrrell and Razi uh, about a century back. Um, but that mistakes the whole thing that Jesus is constantly talking about. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. Um, when he's talking about blessed are the peacemakers and the hungry for justice people and the mourners and, and the, uh, the, the pure in heart and so on, he's not saying, if you are this kind of person, God will love you. He's saying, these are the kinds of people through whom God is bringing his kingdom in the world. And so uh, the people who think that Jesus was predicting a sudden big bang and everything would be different overnight, or maybe the end of the world and a sort of a totally supernatural world starting thereafter. That, that's a modern misunderstanding. Um, uh, you see, the, 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 the way the message that Jesus was proclaiming is that the way God wants to challenge and change the world is through what we see in Jesus himself, a kind of dramatically humble, rescuing servant ministry. Um, so that uh, Jesus' followers, ever since his death and resurrection and ascension, uh, went out in the power of the Spirit into the world and started living differently and started after the poor and started doing education for all, despite the fact that most people in those days were probably illiterate or semi-literate. Mm -hmm. They started doing medicine for all because Jesus was into healing and they wanted to make healing available to all. Um, and by the time the bullies and the bad guys and the power brokers had woken up, you know, the meek and the hungry and the uh, would-be justice people and the um, uh, peacemakers had been building schools and orphanages and were going around changing the world. And the world has gone on being changed ever since. As many historians have said, actually, when you look at the ancient Roman world and then see, granted, Christianity made a lot of mistakes. Of course, uh, it, it isn't perfect, anything like. But... The, the the world has been changed by the gospel and goes on being changed um, and kind of this stuff works but it doesn't work in the way that either caesar at the time or the journalists in our own time would necessarily like to see yeah this is, this raises a, a big split uh in the in the uh thought of modern men and women you were, you started out as a, a classical historian or a roman historian is that right yes okay yeah so so uh, it, Today we assume the that all human beings. I mean, it's it's whether you're talking about the United Nations or other uh, NGOs uh, that are out doing work like Amnesty International. It's assumed that um, there's something called uh, universal human rights, and that uh, all people are to be uh, respected or respected before the law. Anyways, when we come back on the other side of the break. I want you to really help us understand how radically different that was, that that early Christian proclamation that Jesus yep. had died for all, uh, how that was something that was entirely unfamiliar to uh, Jews, Romans, and Greeks. My guest, Dr. N.T. Wright, looking at the New Testament in its world.
The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I told him about the woman who came to me and said her two children hadn't spoken to each other for two years. Their grandma died and she was very wealthy. She left half to each one. She said they're arguing over a commode. She said it's inlaid. Can you imagine being in hell? And somebody saying to you, what are you here for? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Dr. Ray Garendi. When I've had enough. I ask parents, when do you decide to discipline? One of the most common answers is, when I've had enough. If discipline is designed to teach, then we need to discipline before we've had enough. We need to discipline because the behavior's wrong, not because emotionally it's pushed us to our edge. Besides, when you get to when you've had enough, you're much more likely to yell and scream and say things that you have to go to confession for. So, the suggestion is, discipline out of principle, not emotion. Principle means because it needs discipline, and I'm going to do it when I'm calm. Emotion means I'm going to be moved to do it just because I'm mad. I'm angry frustrated. Sound like you? Someone you know? Well, it could be any of us from time to time. But there's different types of anger. It's not so cut and dry. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Ray. One thing is for sure, you don't need to suffer with anger frustration. In my book, Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration, you'll learn whether your anger is a product of your nature or your nurture, and how to regulate those emotions and those thoughts. You can get Living Calm and all my other books at AveMariaRadio.net. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com, order the free digital training and facilitator manual, LordTeachMeToPray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me To Pray. Support for this Ave Maria program comes in part by the not-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Shopping for insurance, mortgage products, Catholic health coverage, identity protection, or financial planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for all those and more. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844 398 9399. That's 844 398 9399. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. 
The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. N.T. Wright. He and uh, uh, Michael Bird have uh, put together an outstanding introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. It's called The New Testament in Its World. And in our world, we take for granted the idea that uh, people are equal before the law, um, and we try to maintain universal human dignity. Uh, this is this a is this part of what the Christian Church has given us over the years? Is this what Jesus, or, or was there a universal acceptance of one another prior to the incarnation? No, there really wasn't. And if you look at the ancient Roman society, I mean, the, the Roman Empire tried to have a kind of measure of equality, that all citizens were equal under the law, but that's all citizens. And if you weren't a Roman citizen, then you would decidedly not be right. equal. Um, but they were trying to do, they, had a, they did have a kind of quasi-universal vision in that they were running an empire that stretched from Spain to Syria and beyond, um, which you know, nobody had done quite that before. Okay, there was Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great, but the Romans really were trying to do a kind of a smoothing out operation. But it manifestly didn't work, and you still had total sharp distinction between males and females, and between, of course, slaves and free, mm -hmm. so that the Roman society was very much still a hierarchical society. And the Jewish world was much more egalitarian, though there too there were quite sharp distinctions, and the different parties and sects within Judaism at the time were, were kind of reinforcing some of that. But then what you get from the very start with the early Christians, one of Paul's earliest letters, Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Um, you are all one in Messiah Jesus. That's an extraordinary statement. And people have often hailed it as revolutionary. And in a sense, the church is still struggling to come to terms with it, which is, which is you know, perhaps to be expected. But then uh, as the historian Tom Holland in his recent book, Dominion, yep. has, has pointed out, when you look at the Roman world. Um, you see all kinds of things, which the early Christians, they didn't necessarily challenge head on, but they just went about doing it differently and subverting expectations and and trying to treat people equally. And I mean, in the third and fourth century, the Roman officials didn't know very much about what Christianity was, but they knew that they had these people who were called bishops and that the bishops were always banging on about the plight of the poor. Um, <laughs> I've often said to people, wouldn't it be nice if that was the thing that our bishops were famous for today? Um, and and uh, that, was, that was how the Church was rightly perceived, as people trying to do this human project differently. Now, of course, in our own day, with people like Stephen Pinker from Harvard saying, oh, we must forget all this religion because actually all we need is the Enlightenment and we just have to go forward with that, that is manifest nonsense. And it's nonsense even in America, where you'd think if it was going to work, it would work there. Um, that it, the, the, the great Enlightenment project, as the postmodernists have pointed out for the last 50 years, has let us down big time. Right. Um, it's out of the Enlightenment philosophies of Hegel and Kant and people that we have, well, the French Revolution, but then particularly um, the, the great totalitarians of the 20th century and the, the Holocaust and the Gulag and so on. These are basically Enlightenment projects, I'm sorry to say. 
And uh, uh, that's why we're a very confused Western world at the moment, that we've, we've only got certain moral standards left, e.g. we don't like Adolf Hitler and anyone who reminds us of him. But that's not a very good way to navigate reality. Um, and what the church had to offer in the first century and still has to offer. And we see this, I mean, back to the, the, the title of the book, the New Testament, in its world. The more you understand its world, the more you understand how revolutionary the message in the New Testament really was and still is. And that, that to me, is really exciting. It is. And uh, this, this, Afro, you know, this attempt to cling to the Enlightenment project, even though, uh, again, as you point out, for 50 years, the uh, postmodern yeah. thinkers have been saying it's a failed project, uh, continues yeah, yeah, yeah. To, they continue to push on. Um, I mean, we celebrated in the United States the uh, it was federal holiday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Oh yes, and uh, yes. that was yesterday. And <laughs> what's what's uh, I can remember uh, th- th- when I was a lot younger, uh, him being talked about as this great civil rights leader. And uh, at one of his um, one of the uh, memorial services for him, uh, it was taking place. Yeah. I don't recall the name of the church now, but uh, the reporter standing in front of the church said, "We're here at the memorial service of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr." Uh, at this church, and it's appropriate it would be in a church because his father was a Christian pastor. <laughs> Comple- completely missing that at the core of King's... Uh, King, King wasn't... Wow. He was unlike wow. the other... He was not an no. Enlightenment thinker. He was act, no, acting no, no, no. out of a no. Christian understanding of power. <laughs> and and he, was, he was a good old black preacher who knew the prophets. He knew Amos, <laughs> he knew Isaiah, right. and would often quote them. I mean, uh, I don't know nearly as much about Martin Luther King as you Americans do, but all that I do know, um, yeah, he was in that great Christian preaching tradition. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the legacies of that whole tradition, which comes through the civil rights movement into the mainstream, thank God, that you don't regard the prophets as simply um, people who are ranting on, you know, eight centuries before Jesus, but you regard them as people who are predicting a new way of being human, which then Jesus himself brings to birth. Yes. And, you know, we needed to hear that. That's, but I hadn't heard that story. That's extraordinary. Oh, a que- is, it a, is it a good question? Is a good question to ask, what would the world look like if God was running it? <laughs> yes, yes. That's that's actually a question I've often asked when I was Bishop of Durham. I, it was it was the way I used to introduce um, various events. Uh, would, would get local churches in one particular area to say, you know, what would Durham look like if God was in charge? What yeah. would Newcastle look like if God was in charge, etc. And some people look rather sort of surprised and say, well, um, I suppose. Um, we'd have better coffee or <laughs> something silly like that, or or maybe the trains would run on time. Or But then they'd get serious and they'd say, well, would there be any sick people? Would there be any criminals anymore? Um, and then when you look at the Gospels and you see Jesus saying, I'll show you what it looks like when God's in charge. And it doesn't mean that there's a big bang and the whole world stops. It means that people get healed. It means that people are having a party because God is doing a new thing. It means that people understand that uh, the, the God who made the world is a God of infinite love, who is loving them and forgiving them and healing them and bringing about new life. And these are signs of the kingdom. And then after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, of course, the message of the ascension, though many churches forget this, is that Jesus is now the Lord of the world. And people say, oh, well, 
he can't be because if you look out of the window, it's obvious that he isn't in charge because there's still bad things right. going on. But that misses the point, misses the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not that no bad things will go on in the meantime. It's that God is doing this new work, small and local, but very, very powerful, working from within and working through humble service and through signs of hope. And these are anticipations of the great new day, which is still to come. It isn't that we've already got everything that there ever will be, far from it. But there are, these are genuine advance signs of what it looks like already now that Jesus has taken charge and is involved in, 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 in leading this project. Yes. Um, that's what the Church is all about, being the people who are taking that project forward in the power of Jesus' Spirit. Uh, my, my friend Father John Ricardo likes to say, God wants his world back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I would say, and he's taken it back in and through uh, Jesus' death and resurrection right. and the gift of the Spirit. And see, the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, and one of the things which I think we bring out in this book, um, New Testament in its world, I think it, it's so important at the beginning of the Acts, when the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, well, it won't be quite like that, but here's your job. He's not saying, oh, no, no, we're not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's going to say, well, yes, that is happening, but it doesn't look like you thought it would. It won't look like a military takeover right. by a, a renewed Israel under a warrior messiah. It'll look like you going out the same way that I went out. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head and was despised and rejected, but look what he did. And the church had nowhere to lay its head and was despised and rejected and stoned and beaten up and so on. And within a generation, um, there's Paul in Rome announcing that God is King and Jesus is Lord under Caesar's nose, openly and unhindered. Mm -hmm. And within another generation, the Roman governor in northern Turkey is writing anxious letters to the emperor in Rome to say, hey, we've got a lot of these Christians around. What am I supposed to do with them? Um, so, you know, despite everything, this is how it spreads. Let me ask you a, a question that's more philosophical, but I think people sense it, even if they don't articulate it. There's this big gap, this gulf between um, yep. our lived experience in the world, our existential awareness of what's today, and yep. the affirmation of certain historical propositions, right? Um, Jesus yep. died uh, in the first century. Uh, he was yep. buried, and he was risen. Uh, how, do, how do statements about the past uh, how are we supposed to understand that they are relevant for us today? There seems to be this huge gulf. Yeah, there, there is. And many people in the modern church have tried to get across that gulf by saying, well, of course, Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. He was divine or whatever. Therefore, whatever he did and said and whatever happened to him kind of matters because it's God's story as well. And, and I would say that's true, but that doesn't get to the heart of it. The whole of the Old Testament, which so many Christians find so difficult, is predicated on the assumption that God has chosen this people, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the means by which he is going to restore the world, to put the world right, so that when we see the history of that people coming to its climax, which is what all four Gospels are saying happened in Jesus, um, then th this means that the, the long-drawn-out secret divine purpose for addressing and healing the world has now been accomplished. Um, and that it's, it's only really when you realize that that's how the Old Testament works, and that's how the New Testament works in relation to it, 
that you then see, that's why it's relevant. And so in a sense, to believe is to believe, uh, to believe the Christian gospel is to believe that that whole preparatory story is kind of retrospectively validated through the events concerning Jesus. Um, and uh, uh, so um, th- this takes this takes time. I mean, not everyone, as it were, comes in by that route, and some people become Christians without ever hearing about the Old sure, Testament, sure. but they pretty soon need to know about it, otherwise they won't understand what family they've joined, if you like, that this is the family that goes back to Abraham, and that the Abraham purpose always was to sort out the mess and muddle of the world. <laughs> That's good. Hold it there if you would, Dr. Wright. We'll come back on just the other side of the break. Sure. My guest, Dr. N.T. Wright, uh, he is uh, author most recently of The New Testament in Its World, uh, which he wrote with uh, Michael Bird. We'll, in fact, on the other side of the break, we'll talk a little bit about how that book came into existence. It is, I think, uh, without question, uh, the best introduction to the New Testament that's out there. I'm Al Cresto. We'll be right back. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. This Ave Maria radio program is brought to you by the following nonprofit. Catholic Charities Agencies served more than 15 million people this past year, providing meals for school-aged children and affordable housing for families, seniors, and veterans. To support these and other programs, consider a Catholic Charities USA donor-advised fund. Simplify your philanthropy and leave a legacy that's simple, flexible, and charitable. For more information, visit ccusa.gives/daf1. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Crest in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization, Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 75% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? 
In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. St. Gregory of Nazianzus once said, He who does acts of mercy should do so with cheerfulness. The grace of a good deed is doubled when it's done with promptness and speed. The best way most of us can learn this approach to Christian service is in our family lives. That's why prompt, generous, consistent, and cheerful attention to each other's needs is such an important part of the liturgy of domestic church life. Every day, ask each other this life-changing question. What's one small thing each of us can do to make each other's lives a little easier or more pleasant? Then, remember to do those things as a way of letting God's love shine out through you in your family. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. N.T. Wright. He and Michael Byrd have uh, given us the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of first Christians. It's, um, well, it's a, it's a big book. It's uh, over 900 pages. And it, is, uh, it has a wonderful uh, style. It doesn't read like an academic treatise at all. Uh, <laughs> I noticed, though, in the part, the headings here, that uh, titles of some of your books, <laughs> Jesus and the Victory of God, The Resurrection of the Son of God, Paul and the faithfulness of God. How, how did you guys go about writing this? This is huge. Well, um, it was Michael Bird's idea. I blame him for it. <laughs> he's, a, <laughs> he's a very li- lively young Australian scholar, and I've known Mike for, for, for some time. He's a great chap. And uh, he is teaching undergraduates and, and seminarians all the time in a way that I used to do but haven't done for a while. Most of my recent teaching has been PhD students. And Mike was very much aware that he was wanting to try to communicate to his students um, many of the things which I have set out in my longer and more academic works, but he couldn't expect his students to read every page of my right. big fat books because <laughs> there's been several of them, etc. So he, he said to the publishers, oh, several years ago, five, six, seven years ago, wouldn't it be great if somebody could boil down Tom Wright's larger books into one single volume student handbook, which would cover everything that needed to be covered, but in a very user-friendly way. And the publishers said, um, we'll just have a word with Tom about it, but we think, yes, it's a good idea and you should do it. <laughs> so, and I, I heartily agreed with that. So Mike basically set to work and read pretty well everything I've ever written, I think, and, and turned it into this single um, strand. And then he sent it to me and we went to and fro and to and fro on email for about a year saying, now maybe this section should come with here and maybe I need to rewrite that bit and could we say this instead of that and so on, as you'd expect with a joint sure. author book. Um, but it was, it, that was mostly great fun. There was quite a lot of hard slog as well because he's an Australian and I'm British, and so a lot of his sentences, I thought, heaven, somebody's going to quote that and ascribe it to me, and I'm not an Australian. <laughs> um, so I, I, 
I, I'm afraid I toned down some of his um, splendid one-liners just a little bit. Um, but uh, we, we left, and but his task as well was to add in all the charts and maps and diagrams and timelines and all that stuff, and lots and lots of pictures and artworks, which really make the book go. You know, I, when I open the book almost at random anywhere, there is all this interesting stuff which jumps off the page. Yeah, and that's true. my hope is that the average student will just be wooed into it and will just enjoy the enjoy the ride. Oh, I, I'm sure that's going to happen. It's a, it's a magnificent <laughs> book. Um, Good, thank you. Uh, let me ask, raise a question that it hasn't been this hasn't been talked about very much recently, but uh, in the '90s, there was all this hubbub about the Jesus Seminar and oh, yeah. this quest for the historical Jesus. And there's a long, uh, you know, academic tradition about the quest for the historical Jesus. I think uh, most people who are not familiar with the academic debate wonder, well, why? what do you mean by that? I mean, are you saying that maybe Jesus didn't exist in history? What is, that, what is this well, quest for the historical Jesus about? Yeah, in every generation there are one or two mavericks who suggest that Jesus didn't exist. And, and sometimes I get told off for saying this, but I really do think that discussing whether Jesus existed or not is like inviting an astronomer to discuss whether the moon really is made of green you know, <laughs> uh, actually guys we, we we know it ain't it ain't like that right. um that, right. that uh we just we we know that jesus of nazareth existed as surely as we know that julius caesar existed and for similar reasons that there are good literary sources and particularly as with many things in history because of the effects that um there were many Jewish leaders, would-be messiahs, prophetic figures, etc. in the first century. We know about them through the historian Josephus, and we have no reason to suppose he's making all them up. And in the middle of it, here is this figure who really does seem to have changed history in, in all sorts of ways, that there is this radical new movement which is launched within the first century. And it's one of the frustrations, by the way, in square brackets, as a classicist originally myself, that uh, the, the, the university and schools departments that teach classics, they really ought to teach Jesus and the rise of Christianity as a subject within that, because it does belong in the classical that's, world. And that's good. The fact that they don't usually do that, and they skip over, you know, they, they may discuss Cicero or Seneca. Right. Well, Cicero lived 50 before Jesus, Seneca lived a bit after Jesus, and they their ideas are amazing and and brilliant and so on. But right in between them stand these people called Jesus and Paul, who actually have been more influential in terms of world history. Why don't we study them in their right. context as well? Right. So, um, so in terms of the Jesus seminar, so-called, that was a movement within one small section of kind of radical American uh, scholarly groups most of whom were fed up with fundamentalism, either Catholic or Protestant fundamentalism. They were mostly recovering fundamentalists. Um, and so they were determined, uh, and you have to remember they were coming out of the Reagan years where people um, on the right, just as happens now, sadly, were saying, um, oh, you know, Jesus is our hero, he supports our right-wing agendas. And they were saying, absolutely not, um, this won't do, etc., etc. So there was a lot of political spin going on, um, and also some fairly shabby scholarship. I mean, if you think back to the great American scholars of the time, people like Ed Sanders and Jim Charlesworth and John Paul Meyer and others, um, none of them 
joined in the Jesus Seminar. Right. The, the only real substantial figures who did were Dominic Cross and Walter Wink and Marcus Borg. And Walter and Marcus were kind of, uh, would have been seen as on the right wing of the Jesus Seminar. And they were just questing interesting, hungry individuals. Um, but most of the most of the members are, are not people of any great scholarly substance. Um, except, I say, Tom Crossan, a man I really respect, and I understand where he's coming from. Um, and, and he and I, I'm happy to say, are still um, good friends in a funny sort of way. Um, but I think the project as a whole was radically ill-conceived, which is why it, it gains no mileage now. I mean, isn't, isn't that issue, uh, so-called quest for the historical Jesus, uh, just a question about uh, how what one can understand through historical research? Well, yes, it, it all depends, of course, what you mean by historical research. Right. Um, <laughs> and I've, I have another new book out, my Gifford Lectures, called History and Eschatology, and I have a whole quite long chapter in there on basically what is history, um, where I've tried to nail a lot of the relevant questions, because it's one of those... People think they know what history is. It's rather like Augustine says about time. We all think we know what time is <laughs> right. until somebody asks you to, to describe what it is. And, you know, history is both what happened and what people write about what happened and right. how people research what happened. And, and what happened itself is a mixture of actual visible events and human motivations. And human motivations constitute a very important part of history. But you, but they, you can't see them on the video camera. Um, but unless you say, you know, why did this happen? Because people wanted to do X, Y, and Z, then you're not really doing history. Um, so uh, it, it is always complicated. But historical research then has to say, so what do we really know about Jesus? And we really know about Jesus that he went around saying, it's time for God to become king in the way that Israel's scriptures had always foretold. And it's perfectly possible to say as historians, what people in his day would have thought that meant, namely some revolutionary agenda for getting rid of the Romans or something like that. And then it's perfectly possible to say, well, Jesus seems to have gone around redefining it. He kept saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and that's what the parables are doing. That's what his healings are doing. That's what his feastings with sinners uh, is doing. And that the, these events and speeches and actions are all ways of taking the existing notion of kingdom of God, which as his we can get to quite easily. We can see what people were expecting. And then saying, Jesus is saying yes to the expectation, but radically revising the way in which that expectation comes about. Yeah. And it really looks as though, historically, Jesus believed it was his vocation to go to be crucified uh, in order to bring this about. Now, that gets you into some very dark waters indeed, as you'd expect, um, as the Church has always recognized. But then, if you believe, even for a split second, that there is such a thing as a dark power of evil, and that there is a good God who desires to overthrow that dark power, we should expect um, this to be a dark theme in itself. And that is indeed what we find, but there are ways through. So, in all those ways, I'm, I'm basically everything I've said is, is doing history is saying, let's look at Jesus himself, at his historical context, what it meant at the time, and how his own reading of Israel's scriptures contributed dramatically to his sense of vocation as to why he had to go to the cross and what Israel's God was going to do next as a result. Well, in fact, let's, let's uh, stay with that a bit. Why did Jesus die? 
<laughs> uh, I once asked a Sunday school <laughs> class that exact question, and, and I made them write down the answers with no conferring, and it was very interesting. Half the class wrote, oh, he died because the Pharisees didn't like him. He died because the Romans were frightened of him. He died, you know, why, why, why? Because these people wanted him dead. And the other half wrote, he died to save us from our sins. He died so that we could go to heaven. He died to make us good. And, so, and, and we spent a very interesting hour putting those two sets of answers together. Because in the New Testament, they, in the New Testament, they come together. Um, it, it isn't an either-or. And when the Gospels are talking about the actual historical processes by which Jesus went to his death, what we see going on, and I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all intend this, is uh, it's as though the forces of evil are gathering themselves together and doing their worst at this very point. You know, you see shrieking benighted souls in the synagogue, you see plotting Pharisees, you see angry Herodians, you see even some of Jesus' own disciples misunderstanding him and then ultimately one of them betraying him. Um, and you see the chief priests being jealous of him and Pilate being a typical muddled Roman governor. And it's as though all the forces of evil in the world are getting together and what they do is they crucify this man. And he takes all that evil represented by them, and he takes it upon himself so that the rest of his people don't need to bear it. And, and thereby, the New Testament says he wins the victory. Somehow he has defeated the powers of evil. And the reason we know that is that he rose from the dead. And because if he hadn't defeated the power of evil, then he would have stayed dead. So the resurrection is seen from very early on as the sign that his death was a victory mm. and that it was a victory gained by him taking upon himself the evil that was otherwise going to fall on everyone else, if you like. So it's a victory through substitution. And the, the four Gospels say that in their own ways. Paul says it in his own way. Um, and that's right through the New Testament. Um, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Wright, for being with me. We're... Uh to the end of our time You're very today. very welcome. It's good to talk to you. Yes, uh, I greatly enjoy uh, what your work has done. It's been a major influence in uh, my thinking about the work of Christ. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, we'll talk again sometime, I hope. Yes, indeed. I very much hope so. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye. Dr. N.T. Wright uh, with Michael Bird has given us the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. I think I own probably all the major introductions uh, to the New Testament. And uh, I can say, well, there are many of them that are very good, by the way. Uh, this one is different. It's different in that it actually not only introduces us to some of the basic questions, but it also does the theology for us. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Pro-Life Across America, the billboard.
On the last Ave Maria Radio Poll of the Week, we wanted to know if you were following the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Well over 50% of you weren't following it at all. About 30% actually are very interested in the results of the cup, and the rest of you were following it, but now that the U.S. has been eliminated, you don't really care anymore. Thanks to everybody who voted in this poll of the week. If you want to vote in the next poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Pool of the Week. Steve Ray here with a Holy Land pilgrimage update. Israel's now open again and has removed all vaccine requirements. Our brand new Buses and Catholic Guide are ready to welcome you. Check out our upcoming pilgrimages to the biblical lands of Israel and Jordan. Pray every mystery of the rosary where it happened and walk in the footprints of Mary and Jesus and let us be your guides. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Thank you for joining us over the last two hours. And if you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up. We'll have uh, N.T. Wright's books there, as well as um, Trent Horn's books on the Saints' most popular misquotes. And as I said, also some material looking at the life and faith of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. There is a uh, Patrick Cavanaugh, the late and great Patrick Cavanaugh, wrote several very fascinating books on the um, spiritual lives of the great composers. Some of them are still in print. Some of them you can find used at you know, bookstores or online or wherever. But if you have a, a music lover in your life, that's definitely something that they would enjoy taking a look at. Uh, as we head into the, tomorrow, I'll go ahead and give you a little preview after, of course, we go off the air on Cresta in the afternoon. Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls, and then we'll have the journey home later on this evening. Um, tomorrow, Al is actually going to be in some meetings all day, so we'll have Matthew Bunsen guest hosting and talking a, a lot of things going on in the world right now. You may have heard there's a, a new lawsuit coming up in Colorado. A woman who is a web designer who creates personalized websites for married couples and engaged couples is being pressured to create a uh, website for a same-sex couple entering a marriage, and she is not wanting to do that. The Supreme Court is going to take a look at that case, and uh, Andrea Bacotti Barrett tomorrow will be giving us the details on what's going on there. Also, some really major news over the weekend, both coming out of Iran. One, the Iran soccer team, after they were eliminated from the World Cup, apparently is facing some repercussions for their protests in support of the Mas mini protest. In a related story, there are rumors that the morality police in Iran is being abolished. That, of course, is the organization that's behind this whole uh, fiasco with Masa Amini, who was killed there a couple of months ago. We've been talking about that with Michael Rubin, and he joins us again tomorrow. Lots of other things to talk about tomorrow as well. We'll hope to see you then. Until then, have a great rest of your evening, and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.